Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast, brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. This is Betty Lynn Fisher, reporter with the Akron Beacon Journal, and I am here with my Beacon Journal colleague, Marla Reidenauer. She covers pro sports for us as a columnist, and I have a lot to talk to you about, Marla. So I want to start by talking about an honor that you're getting. You will be getting honored at the Ohio AP Media Editors Award for a Hall of Fame induction. And then I also want to talk to you about a very personal and powerful column that you recently wrote. So let's start with your honor. I'm going to do a short bio on you first. You're a Louisville native and a 1978 graduate of Eastern Kentucky University. You were the first woman sports editor at the Eastern Progress College newspaper and received the Professional Achievement Award from the EKU Alumni Association in 2019. You became a professional sports writer in 1976 at the Lexington Herald-Leader and recently celebrated your 45th anniversary as a journalist. You've been called a trailblazer for women in journalism. You were hired by the Dayton Daily News in 1981 and became the first female sports writer to cover the Cincinnati Bengals in 1981 before the NFL mandated locker room access to female writers. You moved down to the Columbus Dispatch in 1990 to cover the Cleveland Browns and covered the Bengals during 1996-1998 when the Browns moved to Baltimore. You then joined the Beacon Journal in 1999, and you've covered the Browns, Cavaliers, Indians, Guardians, Pro Golf, and you've been a columnist. You were also inducted into the Kentucky Hall of Fame in 2013. I know it's always weird to hear about your own honors, but tell me, do you feel like a trailblazer? And tell me how rare was it for you to be a female sports reporter and now columnist? I guess I feel like a trailblazer now just because that's what people, you know, (laughs) that's what people say. But What's weird is back then in um, 1976, when I got my first job, we had three women on the sports staff. I mean, so I guess I didn't, that sort of didn't make it seem as big as it is, you know, just as it is. Now, these starting to cover the Browns, you know, there was, there were hardly, I mean, there were women writers covering the NFL, you know, around the country, but, you know, there weren't a whole lot of them here and um, a lot of, you know, women in broadcasting. So, you know, you were standing outside some locker room with Leslie Visser or with whatever, you know, it wasn't like until they, you know, started letting people in. I was lucky that the Bengals let women in the locker room during the playoffs before it was mandated by the league. So I got to cover some some exciting playoff games in uh, Cincinnati back in the 80s. How many years after you started in 1991 did the NFL mandate access? I don't remember, but I think it was like two or three years. So. Okay. Okay. But it was it was at the discretion of the teams until the league mandate came. Gotcha. And going backward, I mean, what even got you interested in 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 sports writing? You know, were you were you into sports growing up? Um, you know, what got you interested in journalism and then specifically sports journalism? Well, I was not a jock. My dad was very disappointed in that. Um, I but he was a sports fanatic. Took me to all kind of like minor league games and you know stuff like. We were big. Um, his boss had season tickets to University of Louisville basketball. So and when the boss didn't want to go, you know, during the week, we always got his tickets and, you know, we we're always watching things on TV together. You know, so my dad sort of, you know, got me into that part of being like a fanatic. And we'd sit on the front porch or in the backyard and listen to Cincinnati Reds on the radio together and those kind of things. So and then when I was in high school, I was on the yearbook staff and. That kind of got me somewhat interested in journalism back then. You even said back in college that you were one of three female sports writers. Was there not necessarily discrimination in college when you got there and said, hey, I want to write sports? That was at the 
my first professional job. In college, I was the first female sports editor and I had to sort of convince them that was like a six month tryout. Okay, you know, I'd never written a sports story when they agreed to make me sports editor. And they I had some tryout story about intramural racquetball that I guess was good enough, you know. So um, anyway, but but like I said, I, I was a sports editor for two years and there were I had, you know, other women, you know, another woman always on the staff that did a lot of, you know, was kind of my right hand person um, back then. So, you know, there were women that were exploring this back then. OK, early in your career. Were there discriminations against you as a female reporter in a male-dominated field, both among mostly fellow male reporters and probably males in the sports world? Well, it's interesting. When I started my career, I only covered women's sports for four years um, in Lexington. And um, the reason I actually left there was because someone at some meeting said women, women couldn't cover men's sports. So I knew I had to start looking for another job. Um I mean, I covered like small college basketball, but not. I was primarily hired to. I got my job because of Title IX. Kentucky hired its first female women's full women's full time coach, and they needed a woman to cover it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say this: I I didn't really feel like it was right for me to go in the locker room at, for at women's games when men weren't allowed. So I did all my interviews out in the hall with them. I just didn't. I didn't agree. Plus, there were so many women. And there were their hair dryers going. It was not conducive to great interviews anyway. Okay. So then you moved to Dayton. You first covered the Bengals and men's sports and then the Browns? Right. Uh, say, like six months later, I was covering the Browns. Wow. Okay. And then you hadn't been in a locker room for, the you know, covering women. Then did you, then you went into the locker room for men because you had to, right? Because that's right, where the right. issue was happening? Right. Okay. Okay. And, um... Did you, you, you and I were talking a little bit before uh, we got on the interview that you've kind of had to compartmentalize, um, you know, like when you were, you know, probably one of the only women um, in that locker room, did you kind of have to just, you know, make sure you just maintained your professionalism? And one of my coworkers in Dayton used to say I could scan a locker room better than anyone they knew because I sort of developed a way to find people by looking at them from the nose up. You know, like I would look at the top of their heads just to go out of the way to so I wouldn't be caught, you know, like looking where I wasn't supposed to be. But, you know, it was I, I once had a conversation with one of the Browns about, you know, he thought I was just there to find a husband or, you know, like to tell my girlfriends, you know, who is the best looking guy on the team, you know, like, you know, it was I was trying to convince him that this no, this is really my job. And I did try to. I mean, just take the sexual part of it out of it. And just, I mean, this was, this was my chosen, my dream job. And I, you know, I wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize, you know, my professional status and access in that regard. Did you ever have someone try to push and say, well, you shouldn't be here in the locker room asking me questions? That happened more with baseball. Um, I remember we were at a Cincinnati Reds clubhouse and I was in there with, uh, I mean, uh, he's a Hall of Fame writer, Hal McCoy, and Dave Parker was giving me grief saying, you don't belong in here. And Hal stuck up for me and told him, you know, she's, you know, the real deal. Also, I had an incident in spring training with an Indians coach. It wasn't it was this was under the Hargrove days who made some remark about me being it was after a spring training game when I just needed like one comment from Jim Tomey. And I just told the um I went to the PR guy and said, listen, I'll take this stuff from the players, but I'm not taking this from the coaches. 
So they nipped that in the bud right away. So I, like I said, it, yeah, there were, you know, there were a few remarks early in the, you know, early in the Browns days, but it wasn't, you know, you did get the impression, you know, they're watching what you're wearing and, you know, they, they got your eye on you, but I, it wasn't as overt or really people weren't really saying anything like a few comments I had in baseball. Mm-hmm. Over the years, have you mentored other female sports reporters? I've tried to. I mean, it is sort of, I wouldn't say it's a super close knit group. I mean, you know, because we all have lives and a lot of them have kids and, you know, they're, you know, but I think I find that more now than I did at the beginning was just to, you know, there's a lot of young women who are trying to start up right now. And it's, it's so different that, you know, there's a lot a lot. It's not just writing anymore. And it's not, I mean, I've always, I've told, told people when I talk to college students that, you know, you're not going to get weekends off. You're not going to have a nine to five job. You know, I'm trying, I almost try to scare them straight into what they're getting themselves into, but even worse now it's like 24 seven. So, you know, I do try to open their eyes about what they're getting themselves into and how demanding it is. Right. I mean, I was surprised yesterday when we were talking about our schedules and you said, well, I'll be at the Cavs game until two o'clock in the morning. And that's early. Yeah, that's so even even within the same newspaper, you and I have different, you know, uh, work life balance schedules. Um, So a lot has changed in the 41 years since you've become a female sports writer. And of course, there's, you know, more female sports reporters. You were saying a lot, you know, earlier on TV and then now um, in in newsprint. You know, it sounds you've just said this a little bit, but, you know, what advice do you have for young journalists and specifically for for women who want to go into sports um, journalism? Is it not is it not probably as big of a deal as it was when, you know, 40 years ago when, you know, you were kind of blazing that trail? Well, you do have to prove yourself, but I consider you have to prove yourself I mean, that you're knowledgeable about the sport and all that. But I think you have to do that every year with a a new team anyway. But, I mean, you do have to be conscious of that because, you know, because there's new players coming in. But you're going to have to do more of that when you're a a female in this business. Um, You have to be versatile. You have to, you know, because there's demands on, you know, videos and things you have to do. I mean, I always tell students, I mean, you don't have to be a journalism major. I would almost like if you have like a a serious interest, I would almost major in that and minor in journalism, you know, because there's, you know, just if you wanted to specialize in a certain aspect. Um, I I also encourage people to read because, I mean, there, I still consider, I mean, obviously I'm a writer at heart. The writing part is important. And I don't feel like you can understand the rhythm of a sentence and just how to put things together if you don't read other good writers. So I do, I really do feel like that's important. Um, but I think the key, what's been the key for me is you have to learn how to interview people and you have to talk to people. You have to have a conversation. You don't want to be putting them on the spot. You want to put them at ease. You want to get them to open up to you. You want to you want to just pretend like you're, you're chatting with a friend, you know, like. So, I mean, that's what I those are some of the things I try to tell young journalists. I mean, both men and women about what it's like these days. Sure. Let's talk about the honor you are getting being named into the Ohio Hall of Fame. You've already got one Hall of Fame induction, and now you're getting a second. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm telling you, Ohio is an incredibly talent-laden market for journalism. I mean, I've worked with so many 
incredible people that just to be, to have my name up there with them. I mean, I, one of my coworkers, Tom Archdeacon was just inducted into this thing, like in 2019. And like, he's like the gold standard when it comes to journalists. So, I mean, it's an incredible honor just to have my name included with, I mean, there's, like I said, there's an, even, you know, winning an award in Ohio, I think is an incredible achievement just because of how many wonderful people are in the business. Let's move on to a very personal and powerful part, um, powerful column you wrote recently. Um, so you decided to share a secret that you said many of your closest friends didn't even know about after 47 years, that the Browns trading for a new starting quarterback to Sean Watson and the allegations of 22 women against him of sexual assault, which he has denied, has triggered memories of your own sexual assault while you were in college. And you wrote a front page column that you were gang raped, your assailants were never caught or tried, and that your story was not believed initially by police and even the university president. Um, you also said you were ashamed to tell your parents and that they didn't find out until they received the emergency room bill. You never discussed it. And you feel that your dad, who died two years later, had a broken heart from knowing what happened to you. So, you know, just first of all, you know, I've already told this to you personally a few times, you know, just, you know, I, it's, you're just so, I admire you so much for, um, you know, taking such a personal and painful story and making it public, right? You, you know, you you don't have to do that. That's not something that you had to do. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, why did you decide to write the column? How hard of a decision was it um, in a public forum? And, you know, talk me through kind of, um, you know, what got you from the initial thoughts of maybe I should do this to, to writing it? Well, I don't, it didn't cross my mind until I wrote the column preceding this one about the Browns being the epitome of hypocrisy for exploring this deal. And then, you know, there was a little bit of feedback about, you know, just, you know, he has not been convicted of anything, you know, he's not, no, two grand juries have failed to indict him. Just, you know, the kind of like, how could I feel so strongly about this when, you know, he hasn't been charged, um, hasn't reached any settlements on any of these civil suits. So, I mean, that sort of got me to thinking just about back to what happened to me and how no one believed me. Um, I had to take a lie detector test, you know, in college and they drove me to the state capitol and put me in this big chair. And, you know, like, I mean, I'll never that's I mean, as as horrifying as this whole thing was, that chair part stand is one of the most vivid memories. Um, and then when I wrote about it for the college paper, you know, because I, there were rumors that these things were going on, but no one, no one knew. And it's not like today where you'd have a blast on every student's cell phone, you know, to be alert, you know, there's a possibility of this, you know, that it wasn't happening back then. So that's why I decided to come forward then and write about it an anonymous story in the paper. Um, our editor, you know, I was a just a news writer then, agreed to print it, but he ran it by the president. The president didn't believe it. He thought it was too outrageous to be believed. So that just got me thinking about, I guess what happens is when I have these memories, like strong feelings about personal things, I, I write about them. It's almost like my, it's like how I get, I get through it. So, um, but also I've been thinking so many for, I mean, for years about what will I do when I retire? I really want to help sexual assault victims. I, I will, you know, would I be a counselor? I mean, would it, would I even be qualified to be one? Could I, I mean, how can I help people? And I just decided that this was the time when I have a platform, you know, we also have the platform 
with Gannett through USA Today to reach the most people. And I, I, I have to, I have to confess. I mean, this was like a message from God saying it's the time to do this. How long did it take you from the initial thought to writing it? Uh, it only took me a few days to, but I, I when I started discussing whether I was going to write that. And I talked to like four or five people. I was so drained. I couldn't put a word down that day because just the talking this out and getting ready to write it was almost as exhausting as writing it. I mean, I wrote the whole thing, the initial rough draft in like 90 minutes. It was like a stream of consciousness, you know, like you've got a 47 year old secret that even your fan, your living family members didn't know about. So you're just like pouring your heart into this thing. It was almost like just as agonizing to decide to do it than it was to do it. I know that you talked with some of our editors who wanted to make sure that you were completely comfortable with this because it was your choice and they wanted to make sure that you knew what you were getting into because this was your story to tell. Were you worried about any type of backlash from the public? Well, we, you know, some people at the paper, we discussed the possible ramifications. Um, You know, will this look like a conflict of interest and the Browns might have been concerned about me, you know, continuing to cover the team you know, obviously there's there there are still a lot of people that, you know, don't like my coming out with this because, you know, Watson hasn't been charged with anything. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people that don't agree with me writing it or, you know, I guess didn't see my point on why I was writing it was to try to help people who are, you know, kind of suffering in silence like I was for so long. But yeah, we discussed that. And like I said, this is what I do is when I take these leaps when when I feel like it's right. Right. This is a 47 year old secret that that very few people knew about. I mean, I'm not sure how many people in your in your inner circle knew. Did you did you call anybody beforehand to kind of tell them before they'd read it in the paper? Well, the first person I called was my best friend from college who she actually had to refresh my memory on some things because I, I didn't even remember what year it was. Um, but her mom was in the hospital about to die. And when she got the phone call from the ER, she thought her mom had died. So, but we, you know, we, and she's the one who, she told me about another person in our dorm who came up to her and wanted to know who wrote the story because same thing had happened to her. Um, but on Friday before Watson um, had his introductory press conference, I, had to call my sister-in-law and because I didn't want her and my niece and nephew reading about this and on the, on the internet without, without knowing. And they had, she had no idea. Um, my, my dad, obviously, you know, my, it's my half brother, but my, my dad had never told, you know, her husband about it. She, cause she would have, she would have known if, you know, if he knew and, and so no one in my family knew about this. So I just wanted to, and that was a very emotional phone call because she was blindsided. She had right. no clue. So that was probably the toughest phone call. Um, but I couldn't really, I mean, I've had people call me in the sense who some of a few of them knew, but I just couldn't call all those people and say, oh, by the way, I'm getting ready to drop this big column on you um i just couldn't do that so i just try i consulted a few a couple close friends in the business just to sort of feel them out on how they felt about this and then you know and like i said my friend from college and that was about it okay so how are you doing this was a 47 year old secret that i'm assuming you haven't dealt with much you probably tried to push it down and so 
Of course, this is making you relive things. So how are you? I'm sure you're overwhelmed with responses and stuff too, but are you going to seek some counseling? Well, I feel like it's been, I mean, sort of freeing in a way. I think the toughest thing was when I, um, the channel three crew, um, Lydia Sparra came over and we talked and she wanted to go through the whole, what happened that night thing. And that was rough, even though I've been thinking it over in my mind, you know, in the past couple of weeks, it wasn't, you know, slip reliving it on camera was pretty difficult, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm, it's really been uplifting to hear from all these people that you haven't heard from. And, you know, the, the responses from the people that I consider friends in the business and personally have been wonderful. So I guess that's sort of helping me. I, I really, you know, the whole triggering part of it hasn't been that bad since I wrote it. I mean, I feel like, I mean, maybe I will need counseling someday, although like one, I told one of my friends who suggested it, I said that might happen when I retire because I'm worried about what are these feelings going to be like when I don't have my work to plunge myself into. And I mean, I think I'm convinced that that's how I got through this whole thing was just working my, you know, devoting my entire life to my job. Sure. Talk to me a little bit about the public response to this. You've talked about hearing from your friends. What about readers? Have they been emailing you, calling you? What kind of responses have you gotten? Well, I probably have. I don't know. I didn't count them, but I've got at least 200 emails in my, you know, work inbox. And it's been somewhat staggering how many have been affected by sexual assault. You know, either a family member or personally or, um, I mean, they're telling me what happened to them and how, I mean, it's. It's a mate, you know, I assume they're doing that because they want to make, you know, me under, you know, feel that, you know, they're not a, I'm not alone and all that. But it's it's amazing that even people that approach me, you know, at a, at a game or whatever, you know, they've had something happen in their family or I mean, granted, there's been a few harsh ones that, you know, didn't agree with me writing this, you know, but I mean, I've had responses from men and women who who have been, you know, sexual assault victims or like it's just been I guess I would say eye-opening is like this is I mean there's so many society societal issues and I sort of feel like this gets pushed to the side and this is just kind of reawaken my like how pervasive this is it's it's very sad but also I'm glad that some of these people feel free enough to sort of tell me their stories Right. It's probably cathartic for them as well. You touched on this a little bit, but what kind of negative reactions have you gotten? And what do you say to those who say you shouldn't have written this because Watson hasn't been charged or convicted? Well, obviously I haven't had time to answer all these people, but I would say in this forum, I this was all about the triggering of what this triggered for me. This was not, you know, like like this isn't about Watson and whether, you know, he eventually settles these suits or, you know, whether this is, he, he didn't do any of this. This is really, this is just about, I mean, whether he likes it or not, um, this is going to be following him for a long time. And especially, you know, followers of the Browns are going to have to deal with this too. Not, it's not just the people that have to cover it. So I was just trying to shine a light on, what this kind of 
you know, this story is going to bring for so many people who have devoted their lives to the Browns, whether as a fan or, you know, like me as a professional. Right. Have you gotten any reaction from the Browns? Well, Kevin Stefanski texted me on Saturday and we really haven't been able to connect because he's so busy. Um, but we've, we've set up some time to talk next week. Um, a couple PR um, guys have texted me just, you know, a pre, you know, sending their support and, you know, how much they um, admire what I did. So um, that, that's been the extent of it thus far. But I'm sure we'll be, you know, there might be opportunities down the road. You did mention this already. But do you feel that you can still cover the Browns in your columnist role, having written this and knowing that Watson triggers these memories? I mean, I feel like I've always been able to separate the personal and the professional. And I haven't had any there was nothing on Friday at his introductory press conference that made me think I wasn't going to be able to continue to do that. Um, I mean, we'll see. But I don't I mean, we'll see what the outcome of these civil cases is. Um, I don't I really don't think. Obviously, we're going to have to mention this constantly, at least for, you know, the next season and got probably beyond. But I mean, I'm also here to write about how he performs on the field. So I, I don't see that affecting my my judgment or my perspective at all. Right. I don't know what your future plans are, but did you consider retiring at all because of this? Well, my first gut reaction was yes, only because. You know, you wonder, I mean, I think this is 38 years on the Browns beat and it's somewhat, I consider this somewhat like, you know, like a step in the wrong direction for the franchise. And just, you know, I mean, as I once tried to explain to Bill Belichick, you want your team to succeed. You know, it's part of your, you know, you always, some, when you're a kid, you want to like have a world series ring on your finger they, you know writers used to get those when they covered you know like the big red machine or what you know like that's you want to see your team it's good to interview happy players not you know players who are losing so um that i mean in my gut that did cross my mind when this first happened but then i decided you know i wanted to make this that decision on my own terms um you know i still this is still a wonderful job that is not a job at all i mean I'm getting paid to cover things that, you know, people, you know, would give their IT the witness, you know, so I, I mean, and I do enjoy it. So you know, we'll see how, you know, how much longer I can survive in this 24-7 world. <laughs> right. Um, and I know you were there on Friday, you know, for his first press conference, but have you interviewed Deshaun Watson yet? Or what do you think you'll say when you, when you get, when you meet him? I haven't yet. And I like I expect that the Browns are going to be kind of careful with I wouldn't assume they, they will allow any one on ones right right off the bat, you know, in his first season. Um, you know, I what's funny is the f first time I met him was he was playing against Ohio State in the um, in the playoffs in 2016. And I was so impressed with him then. You know, I wanted the Browns to draft him number one instead of Miles Garrett. So, um, you know, that's probably been part of the conflict. I mean, I wrote about that in the hypocrisy column about I spent years upset that the Browns didn't pick him, you know, like, but I, I don't think it's going to, I mean, I'm not going to bring up anything about these allegations when we eventually meet, if we do. Um, and it's possible that won't happen you know, for quite some time, at least in a one-on-one -on -one setting. I mean, we're going to be 
obviously interviewing him on a weekly basis once he's cleared to play and they're presuming there's no suspension by the NFL. Right. What about the Haslam's? Do you do you get much interaction with them or what would you say to them if if they reached out? Well, I would I would like to talk to D Haslam one on one because I guess in my very upset Tuesday night after they had the meeting with the Watson that I kept it kept going through my mind about would D Haslam really sign off on this? I mean, I I would rather ask her about it than Jimmy just because you know, I guess I consider, you know, she's on all these committees for the league and she's done, you know, done so much, you know, to sort of include, you know, in the inclusiveness of women in the organization and making that, a, you know, a priority that I guess I was kind of disappointed. And I would like to talk that out with her um, at some point. Maybe that will happen in training camp. Um, we'll see. You said in your column that your life has come full circle and that you've often thought about it as you mentioned earlier, helping sexual assault victims in retirement. Do you feel like with this column, you've spoken up for all victims? And what message do you want to send sexual assault victims who hear this? Well, judging from the reactions of the ones that I've emailed, I have spoken up for them. I mean, that's what they feel like I did. So I'm glad that at least the victims who have contacted me feel that way. Um, I guess my message would be, this doesn't have to derail your life. I mean, not everyone, you know, has the strength that you can seek help to get through it. But I mean, I was able to get my dream job and keep my dream job despite, you know, a horrifying experience that, I mean, it could have scarred me. I'm sure it did, but I was still able to go on. I mean, that's my number one thing. Um, the also would be like, I mean, you don't doubt yourself if you're, you know, when you're telling the truth and no one believes you, I mean, it's worth fighting to try. I mean, I did everything I could in the investigation to try to catch um, the people that, you know, attacked me. And I, I believed it was worth it. Um, so, you know, so sort of fight for your truth, so to speak. And my last thing would probably be, it's probably not good to keep a 47 year old secret, <laughs> but I mean, my like, you know, even Channel 3 asked me the other day, like, why didn't you talk to your parents about this? And I was like, we weren't that kind of a huggy talking family, like talked about personal things. That was just that was just not us. Um, so if that's not the case, I guess it would be, you know, I think it's it would probably have been I mean, I was fortunate that I had close friends on my dorm floor who basically carried me through this because they knew all that they were there and they knew everything that happened, but you really need, but it's, and it's not like something you would discuss frequently, but you really do need to have someone to help you and try not to go through this alone. Thank you again for such a powerful column and for taking the time to talk about it. Well, I appreciate being able to talk about it. And like I said, I, hopefully if people see this or hear this, they will, like I said, just understand that I'm trying to help as much as I can and with whatever outlet I have right now. Thanks again. Thanks. 